We thank you for this season of thankfulness. We praise you, and we thank you for being our Savior and our God. And we love you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hello. How many of you still have turkey left over in your refrigerator? Yeah? No, some don't. We do. We have turkey left over in our refrigerator. One, currently, one out of three brands eat the leftover turkey. That would be Nicole. Um, I, it is not something that I really like that much. Uh, Nicole did make a, a good turkey this year. It was very juicy. It had some flavor to it, which is, you know, a miracle within itself that there's flavor in a turkey. So it, she, did a good, she did a good job, and I had one little sliver on it, and I put pepper on it to add flavor so that I could get it down. I know some people say that you should put gravy on top of the uh, turkey in order to give it flavor, right? My opinion of that is if you have to put gravy on something to give it flavor, the stuff up underneath it isn't worth eating. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but that has flavor. A baked potato has flavor. Mashed potatoes and gravy, yeah, mashed potatoes and gravy. I don't put gravy. Look, my food don't touch. (laughs) Separated in each one of its categories so that I can taste it. I can taste each one. Well, it goes to the same place, not when it goes in your mouth. A little bit at a time so you can taste it as it goes down is the way that that goes. Well, good. <clears throat> good. Glad everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Um, if you're visiting with us today, my name is Philip Brand. Um, if you're not visiting with us today, surprisingly, my name is still Philip Brand. So that, that's cool. I would like you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. That's where we'll be starting today. Genesis 31. And... Uh, as you turn there, <clears throat> which we'll be going to a lot of passages of Scripture today, um, as you turn there, I want to tell you a story. Aurora was home. She came home uh, Wednesday, and she left on Friday, and it was great to see her. her. Her boyfriend came in, and he's a nice guy, you know? So he's a nice guy. He came in as well. And uh, while, while we were there, uh, Aurora told me the story about she went on spring break with a family in her church to Wintergreen, and they stayed in a huge house, a huge house. And um, this isn't it, by the way. This isn't the house. But she said it was absolutely huge, and she described it. She described going into it. She described the first floor. She described the elevator that took you up, you know, up to the fourth floor, third floor, second floor. It was just an enormous house. In one of her descriptions, she said, Dad, uh, they had a great room and a kitchen and a living area that was open, and you could fit our house inside of that space alone. It was that enormous and that big. And so in my mind, I was like, I've never been in a house that big before. I mean, I've never even been to Biltmore. I've seen it, you know, in pictures, I've seen people go there for Christmas and all that kind of stuff. Never been to Biltmore. But she, she it was the first experience that she had ever had with a house that big and that large. And she said, you could put our house inside of that. At the end of the week, <clears throat> the owners of the house came and ate dinner with them. 
And while the guy, the man that owned the house, was talking to her, he found out that um, she played the trumpet, I played the trumpet, and that her mom sang and played piano, right? And he said, so is, is that how your parents make money? And, and she said, no. He said, well, what do they do to make money? And she said, well, my, my mom's a dog groomer and my dad's a pastor. And then he said, well, what do they do to make money? <laughs> so roll that around a little bit, right? What do they do to make money? So <clears throat> enormous, enormous wealth, huge house. Most of our houses would fit inside this particular house, right? If not all of them in here, because I've been to your home. So all could fit inside of there. So that's amazing. So we get to Genesis chapter 31, and this is what it says. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what our father's he has gained all of this wealth. Now that particular word wealth there is the word kavod. Turn to your neighbor and say kavod. Kavod, yeah, kavod. And kavod is the word in Hebrew that is translated most of the time, glory. But here it's translated wealth. And so this word has a concept that glory has to do partly with wealth and how much that you have. And so the kavod of, J- of uh, Laban was being taken by Jacob. And so his wealth was becoming bigger and larger than Laban's wealth. And so you could put Laban's household now in the household of Jacob. It was that big. It was that glorious. And the Old Testament people thought in terms of the more wealthy people were the more glorious people, the people with glory, and the people with less wealth had less glory. So it had a weight to it. It had, it had a wealth to this particular glory thing. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter, I mean, not Genesis, uh, Psalm chapter 19. We have somebody new on the computer, don't we? No? Did you do it last time? So we do have somebody new on the computer. Like, Yes, yes. Okay, so Psalm 19. I'll help you out then. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Well, I, I need to get there myself. Psalm 19. And this is what it says in verse 1. The heavens declare... The glory or the kavod of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So this psalmist is saying that the heavens somehow or another declare the glory of God. So the glory that he's talking about here when it comes to God is not just wealth and riches and you could put your house into it like we just talked about. There is something else that is added to that particular definition. So the heavens tell us something about the glory of God. Now, you may or may not know this, but this year, Mars will be the closest that it's been to us in the last two years. About every two years, Mars, in its rotation, gets close enough to where we can actually, through a telescope, see the redness of Mars and actually the ice caps at the very bottom of it. On December 4th, 5th, and 6th is when you can see that particular planet through your normal telescope, and it's pretty, pretty phenomenal. If you want to know what that looks like, here's a video of what it looks like. This is from two years ago. So 
you can see, you can see the red. And sorry, sometimes it's hard to keep the telescope, you know, where it's supposed to be. But you can see the red. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Now, the next screen will show you a still image of this. It's been kind of blown up. And at the very bottom of it, you see that little white section. That's actually the polar ice caps on Mars. And through your telescope, if you look on a certain night, like on December 4th, 5th, or 6th, you'll be able to see the polar ice caps on Mars. And I think that's pretty, pretty cool, considering how far away Mars is. And the other times during the year that you look at Mars, it just looks like a little round white ball in the sky. It doesn't really have the colors that it has now and, and that little, little ice cap at the bottom. So currently, I'm taking my telescope out each night that I can. I don't, you know, not on cloudy nights. But on clear nights, I take it out and I look at Mars. And then right next door to Mars is Jupiter. And so I look at Jupiter, and every time I've looked at Jupiter with my telescope, I can always see the colors on Jupiter. It doesn't matter where Jupiter is in its orbit rotation, I can always see some of the colors. Sometimes it's just a little slim color going around. I have seen the eye of the storm through my telescope before, and I can see four of its 83 um, moons as it goes around. I, I can actually see that. And I got to thinking about that a little bit. You know, Jupiter is enormous compared to Mars. Like, it's it's the biggest planet in our solar system, and it's absolutely huge. And God created it that way so that you and I would be able to see it because God already knew that he was going to have somebody create a telescope so that you could look through it and actually see Jupiter and at least see some of its moons and some of its stuff. He wanted you to see that. Now, right next door to, to Jupiter is Uranus. And I know some of you say that differently. I'm not going to say that pronunciation in church. So, so you can see that. And every now and then, when, when that planet is at a certain point is it in its rotation, I, with my telescope, can see the blue of that planet in my telescope. So that planet is also huge. And God created it that way, so you and I would see it through a telescope one day and be able to say, hey, that's Mars, it's red, that's Jupiter, it has the lines around it, and over here is the planet, I'm not going to say that name again, and it's blue right here, okay? We'll, we'll call it the blue planet from now on, that's what we'll call it. And then right next door to that is Saturn, and Saturn is even bigger um, than what you might think. I can always see Saturn, I can always see its rings. And I sit back and, and I start thinking about how far those planets are from us and how we're able to see those. And I kind of get overcome with the enormity of our solar system. But then as I'm on my back, beyond our planets and our solar system are stars that have other planets rotating around them and galaxies that you and I cannot see with the naked eye. I know this to be true, in part because when I look through my telescope, I can see more stars than I can when I'm viewing it with my own eyes. And so the vast amount of stars and planets and galaxies is just absolutely mind-boggling, the space between. Listen, I think from North Carolina to Florida is a long distance. You know what I mean? And, or, or North Carolina to Pennsylvania is a long distance. I think that is a long distance to travel. I cannot imagine going to Mars. Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. I, I can't imagine going there in a little capsule 
for that long a period of time, even if I'm going to fly around it one time and never land. I can't imagine that. And it's so big. I read somewhere a couple of weeks ago that there is a galaxy that is 4 billion miles wide. And then I reread it, and it was 400 billion miles wide, which to me makes no difference. It makes little difference if it's 4 billion or 400 billion at that particular moment, right? And so it's, it's, in, it's a galaxy that's in outer space, and it's traveling at 200,000 miles per hour through outer space. It's just going. And that blows my mind. By the way, we are all moving at a rate of speed through outer space. We are all rotating around something. Our galaxy is rotating around something in in the universe, it is all, we're all moving. And the mind, another mind-boggling thing about this is that the galaxies and the stars and the planets are in space, which is nothing. There's nothing there. There is no reason for these galaxies to be in orbit, to be moving. There's no reason for us to be here. It all hangs in a space where there is absolutely Nothing at all. And when you look up there and you think in terms of the heavens declare the glory of God and you get to the point where you really understand what you're looking at, it takes your breath away. And the thing that takes your breath away is, yes, the galaxies and the stars and all the stuff that is up there. But then right beyond that is the thought that there is a God that is bigger than all of that. He is more enormous than the galaxies and the stars and the planets and the systems that you are looking at through your eyes. And as you lay on your bed back, it takes your breath away that this is a God that created those things. And ladies and gentlemen, glory has a weight to it and has a, it took my breath away moment. Glory has this thing where when you consider who God is and his glory, you go, wow. We are people that live inside of his wealth, wisdom, and creative ability, and we're just a small portion of that. We're not even the biggest portion of that. When you begin to think through all of that and you think in terms that the heavens are declaring the glory of God, that glory has a weight and a wow and a wow. It just takes my breath away. And that's what the psalmist is saying. So glory has that to it. Turn to your Bibles, not to Exodus 30, which is going to be on the next slide, but to Exodus 40. I kind of made a mistake. Um. I I became dyslexic for a moment. So I did my numbers wrong on my notes. And you would think that that would be 03. No, I'm a professional dyslexic. Um, I did chapter 40 and and did it a little bit different. So, you know, old McDonald had a farm, O-E-I-E-I-O. apologize for that joke. I thought it was good. <laughs> or maybe you don't know the song because you're preschool. I teach it to you. All right. I have um, started making a new salad dressing. I've been excited about it. In fact, so excited, I've told people about it that really didn't care to hear about it. Yes, I have become that person. 
And so, and so I'm going to tell you about it. You start with red wine vinegar. Now, it, it's okay as a Baptist to buy red wine vinegar. It's perfectly okay, okay? And you, t- you take four, look, no, I mean three tablespoons, and you put it in a bowl, and then you get minced garlic, you stick that in a bowl, and you whisk it, start whisking it. Then you get basil, and you chop up that basil, you mince that basil, and you put that in, in the red wine vinegar, and, and you do it like this, right? But you're not done. You go into your cabinet and you get some um, oregano and you, just a pinch of oregano right in there and some salt and pepper and you, and you mix it up in that bowl. I mean, you're just mixing it up. You're, you're whisking it, right? And then the last ingredient is your olive oil. So you take your extra virgin olive oil and you pour, pour it into the bowl and you whisk it in. You do it very slow. You put a little bit in, you whisk it, you put a little in, you whisk it, you put a little in, you whisk it until it smells right. Now, I can't tell you how it smells right, but if you just smell it as you go, you know when you have the right dressing. It's an Italian dressing. But that is not all that you need in order to make this great salad. What you need is you need to go to the store and buy the pack of Italian lettuce mix, and you stick that in a bowl. You get great tomatoes, and you cut them in half, and you stick them around the bowl like this because it's supposed to be a work of art. A salad is supposed to be a work of art, all right? Then you take a a banana pepper that's yellow because in the store they're green and you just kind of have to wait on them to get to where they need to be. And you chop it up, right? And you you chop up the banana pepper, just a little bit of it, and you sprinkle that into your bowl. Then you take a cucumber, you peel it, you put it in a circle, and then you cut it like a pizza, four sections. And you take three of these and you sprinkle them around the salad. Now, I'm not going to say this cheese right, but I know what it is. I think it's gorgonzola cheese. Did I say that right? Gorgonzola? I've been practicing, you know. So you take some gorgonzola cheese and you put it in the middle. You you sprinkle it in the middle and then you get some fresh Parmesan and you put the little fresh Parmesan right in the middle of that salad. You take the dressing that you have just made and you pour it over that salad and then you add salt and pepper and it is, oh my, it is so good. But you have to do all of that or you don't get that taste. Like if you're missing the cucumber, you're going to miss part of the taste. It it has to have that type of balance. It is not a perfect salad unless it has those ingredients, okay? So you look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, and this is what it says. It says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the glory of the Lord came down and it filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now in another section of Exodus, it says that when the glory fell down onto the tabernacle, it actually made the tabernacle holy. The glory of the Lord touching that particular space on planet Earth made that particular space holy. So glory touches things and it makes those spaces holy. That is another portion of glory. Glory is not only wealth, like immense wealth and riches and and God owns everything, that sort of concept. And it's not just the fact that he's enormous, that he created everything in the universe, and he holds it together, you know, with his power. It's not just that. There's another section to glory that says that glory also does something. It's not just talking about it. Actually, when it touches something, it makes things holy. It makes things holy. And so, 
um, Exodus 40, it demonstrates that. Now, turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. It's chapter 33. And we'll begin reading with verse 17. This is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses, at this point in time, had not seen the tabernacle. Um, Well, he had seen the tabernacle. Anyway, he wanted to see God's glory. He wanted God's glory to be shown to him. So he asked the Lord to show him his glory. And this is how God responds. He says this in verse 19, and he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, at first blush, you're like, oh my goodness, did God hear him right? Have you ever had that happen in your house? Like you said something, and the person responded with something weird, something out of the norm, something overhearing you thought, Uh, that wasn't even remotely close to the question that I just asked them. Has that ever happened to anybody in the room? Raise raise your hand. That is because that person wanted to tell you something that wasn't the answer to your question, and they're going to tell you the answer to your question a little bit later, but they wanted you to know that particular fact because they don't really care about your question at that time. They they have something burning on their heart, and they just want to tell you that, okay? The, the problem when we get to God is God isn't necessarily like that. God is always answering the questions in Scripture. So when he says, show me your glory, God said, okay, I will show you my goodness. Because my goodness is tied in with my glory. So have you ever had anything done for you by God that was good? Yes, Well, you have had a touch of his glory. And then he goes further and he says, I will show you my glory and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Have you ever had God be gracious to you, a sinner? Absolutely. You have had a touch of the glory of God because the glory of God is not only something that touches things and makes it holy, it is also something that is good when it touches you. It is also something that is gracious when it touches your heart. There's a graciousness to the glory and the weight of God. The enormity of the glory and the wealth of God still touches our hearts with that graciousness. It touches our hearts with that goodness. And then he says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Has God ever showed mercy to you? Absolutely. And if you're a Christian in the room, he has done that to you definitely. When you bowed your head and you asked forgiveness of your sins and you asked Jesus to be your savior, that is the moment that you were touched with God's mercy and therefore you were touched with his glory. His glory fell down on your life and changed your heart and made it whole. It made it holy. See, you are sanctified and set apart, not just because God is holy, but because his glory touches things and makes it holy. Isn't that incredible? The enormity and weight of the glory of God, God has whittled it down to where it can touch your soul and make you exactly who you need to be, the glory of God. But this text doesn't stop here. 
In verse 20 it said, But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And what he's telling him is that you cannot, as a man, see my glory with your eyes because the weight of my glory will crush you. God is saying, I'm doing you a favor by just showing you my goodness, by showing you my graciousness, by showing you my mercy, and not showing you my full glory because you could not stand in the full glory of God. You and I need to think in terms that God's holiness is a part of his glory. So even in scripture, when people are standing in the holiness of God and they drop to their knees because they feel unworthy, they are just getting a taste of what the glory of God actually is because it's that big. So he's saying here, you can't see my full glory because it will crush you. Our God is not only bigger than the universe, he's bigger than anything that we can fathom with our little minds. He is huge. He is, as my wife would say, ginormous. I hate that term. Ginormous, but I love her. And so I put up with it. With the grace and the mercy of a glorious God. Just, just joking. But, but really, he is that big. He is so huge. He's so huge. And so he said, you can't see me. It would crush you. So the Lord said this. The Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. I don't know if it's a rock like this one, but probably not, because that's not in Israel. So... There's a place where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. So God is saying, not only can, you, can I pass on the other side of the rock with my glory, you can't really even be touched with it or you'll be crushed. So I'm going to put my hand over you to protect you from my glory. Isn't that quite a concept that you and I might need to be protected from God's glory? That it is that powerful and that potent that he has to protect us and only he can protect us from his glory. So he veils it with his hand and he passes by. And then the text goes on to say in verse 23, then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. That particular phrase, you shall see my back, is actually a Hebrew phrase that means you will see where I have been. So after I've walked by and passed, what is left over, you will be able to look at and you will be able to see my glory. So we are only capable of seeing the glory of where God has already been. Isn't that something? So when you think in terms of God creating the planets and everything in outer space, that is a place in history 6,000 years ago where God has been working. Still working today, but he threw that into existence. Every time you see you and me, this is a place where God has been. And we can view his glory because he has been here. Is he still here? Yes. But we can see where he has been. That is where we can see his glory. This is absolutely a mind-blowing concept about the glory of God. See, we sing it. 
glory to God in the highest at Christmas. Just, just kind of sometimes flippantly, sometimes with meaning, but maybe not with the weight that that word really has. It is a weighty word, an enormous word, something that describes something far beyond our mind's comprehension, but it describes an individual that is decided, sorry, just got choked up right here, not, <clears throat> not emotionally, but <clears throat> heat-wise, him. And there it went. What was I just saying? I know you were listening. I obviously wasn't. Yeah, he's exciting, emotionally. I'm just going to I don't remember what I was saying. Oh, yeah. He is so enormous. Yeah, oh, yeah. He is so enormous that he has decided to come to a small planet called Earth, to a small individual with whatever your name you have, and touch your heart with his glory, he decided to whittle it down to a place where you and I could actually hold just a fraction of a piece of it for just a little while. That is amazing. That's amazing. Um. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a reference, actually, to Psalm chapter 8, which says that God created mankind a little lower than the angels, and he crowned them with his glory. So back in the garden, Adam and Eve were crowned with the glory of God. And when they decided to sin and rebel against God, they took their crowns off and left that behind. They fell short of the glory of God. They, they died or were separated from the glory that God had given them. Now, Psalm chapter 8 also tells us that not only were, was mankind created in the glory of God, and though we know he lost it, but that Jesus Christ one day would come and take on flesh and blood, and he would be crowned with the glory of God for you and me. So not only does God touch human hearts with goodness and mercy and make them whole, God decided to become flesh and bone so that he could interact with his people that he loved. So he became the, what's called the second Adam, and he was crowned with glory and lived here on earth for you and me. So at Christmas time, we uh, celebrate the incarnation of God. We, the incarnation where he has veiled his glory in flesh and bone and came here to earth to walk among us. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By just his word, he upholds the universe. I can't even tell my kids to do something and they do it every time. That's how powerless I am, Right? But God, by the word of his power, holds everything into existence, and it all obeys him. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's <clears throat> glory is found in Jesus Christ. He is the imprint of his nature, and we have fallen from that nature. So what did God do? Well, God said... You and I could ask forgiveness of our sins and ask him to be our savior 
and he would come and live inside of us. His glory would come and live inside of us, and we would be saved. We would be renewed. The enormous God that should not even be concerned about you and me is concerned about you and me. And he sent Jesus to come into the world to be our Savior, to touch the hearts of people so that they could be made whole. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And this is the last one for today. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we'll begin reading with verse 8. This is what it says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. I want you to notice that it's not the glory of the angels that shone around them. It was the glory of God that shone around them. This means that the angels had been in the presence of a glorious God, and it's so potent that you take it with you once you leave his presence. Verse 10 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, get this, glorifying and praising God for all they have heard and seen as as it had been told to them. Here's the deal. Jesus Christ, a glorious God, came and was born in a stable. And at the moment that he was born in the stable, that stable became the most holy place on the entire planet. That manger that he was swaddled in and placed in became the holiest manger that has ever existed on the planet at any time. It became holy because God's glory was veiled in flesh and bone and was placed into that manger. And that scene, that manger, that stable became a holy moment. And the shepherds were able to enter into that glorious, holy moment. It was something that you couldn't do back in the tabernacle when the glory fell. You could not enter into the Holy of Holies. But now, because Jesus has come, people can come to him. And when they come, they can enter into a holy place and interact with a holy God face to face. He can now be their friend. Ladies and gentlemen, that's amazing. The glory of God came to this planet. 
And if you doubt me, all you have to do is read through Luke and you will find that there's a section of scripture where Jesus is transfigured into the glory that he was veiling all this time. And that stable was a most holy place and the shepherds knew it. And when they left, they left glorifying God and praising him. And let me tell you something. If you have been touched with the glory of God, if you have been touched with the glory of God, his mercy, his grace, his holiness, you cannot help but praise him for who he is and why he cared for you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is just part of what Christmas is about. And this holy season is a season where we remember that God's glory came down to earth and made a dirty stable the most holiest place on the planet. That is an amazing thought. Amazing thought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stay that you've given us. Man, are you glorious. It takes my breath away. The thought that a stable was just as holy as the holy of holies in that moment um, is just a wow. There's no words that could describe that. How the shepherds would have felt when they saw you when they interacted with Mary and Joseph, when they understood what they were looking at, when they understood that they were standing on holy ground, it was very overwhelming to them. So they went out singing songs of glory and praise. They were so energized and overcome by it that the people in the city talked about it and wondered what had just happened. Father, I pray for each one of the people in this room today that we get at least a concept of your glory that would make us just come into a state of awe and wonder of you. And that it would overflow in us so much that everywhere we went this particular week, that people would just be in wonder at the excitement that we are getting from the fact that a glorious God touched our heart with his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. So help us be a witness for you in that regard. I pray for anyone in the room that has never received you as their personal savior. They never have encountered your glory touching their life. I pray that today will be the day that they ask forgiveness for their sins, ask you to be your savior, because it's in that moment that they will be made holy on the inside. They'll be set apart, righteous. So work as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing this song. I'm here to pray for you. If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, I'm here to help you with that today. Um, If you want me to pray for you for any other reason, you can come forward and I'll do that for you.
as we sing. You are the first, you go before, you are the last, Lord, you're the encore, your name's in lights for all to see, the story hosts declare your glory, glory in the week.